All right, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. And the title this evening is, is Good Tidings. Good Tidings or Good News. When the shepherds on the hills of Bethlehem got the announcement from the angels about Christ's birth to the world, the angels said in Luke 2.10, I bring you good tidings or good news of great joy, which will be to all people. And the heart of the message is joy. Joy. Joy is what the whole world needs desperately tonight. Because life is hard much of the time. And life without Jesus isn't life. It's merely existing day to day. Life isn't like a book of fairy tales, you know, where it starts, you know, uh, you know, that, that in the beginning and, and you know, and, and it ends with they lived happily ever after. You know, life is not that way. Life is often confusing. Sometimes it's totally chaotic. And nothing makes sense sometimes. Life is often messy. You can't find happiness by chasing after it, by pursuing it. Happiness is a byproduct of the depth of your relationship with God. Your unhappiness is caused by looking in all the wrong places and things that can never satisfy. No person or thing can ever make you truly happy. And we put a lot of pressure on people, our spouses or whoever it might be, to make us happy. You know, we have this idea that when I marry this person, they're going to make me the happiest person in the world. It doesn't always work out that day, even if you stay married all of your life. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of pressure for that individual to, to make you happy all the time. It just doesn't happen, and that's where Jesus comes in. So... All the, world that, all the world has to offer us is temporary because nothing is lasting in this world and nothing is new. What God offers is good news of great joy and it's for everybody. And when people are dealing with the difficult circumstances that life throws at them and they can still show joy, it's living proof that God saves sinners. You know, in waking up every day, And leaving our homes to face the challenges and the uncertainty and the lawlessness and the wickedness and the sadness that's all around us. There's nothing more important for those who call themselves Christians than to represent our faith in such a way in front of other people that we give them the impression that there is an answer to life. There is an answer to joy. And that answer is Jesus Christ. You know, we're living in a world that has, that has gone sadly and insanely off course. And we, the church, or Jesus Christ, we should be standing out like sore thumbs. As men and women characterized by a fundamental joy and conviction, even through our circumstances and our adversity. One of the distinctives of the early Christians was their joy. Their joy in the midst of everything, in the midst of persecution, like, you know, has never been seen, been seen before. Their joy, their love for one another, how they took care of one another it, 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 through God in, in a living in a tough world. John Calvin said this, hard times should never make us hardened people and adversity should never make us abrasive. According to one archaeologist, 
back in, in, in biblical days, the apartment buildings of ancient Rome were so carelessly built that the city was constantly filled with the noise of buildings falling down or being torn down to prevent, prevent them from falling down. And the people who lived in those apartments were always expecting their apartment to come down on their heads. Could you imagine? That was the environment that the Roman Christians raised their families in. And their everyday world wasn't nice furniture. It wasn't designer clothes, fancy meals. It was a hard life. And the streets at night were especially dangerous after dark. The people didn't have medical care. They didn't have urgent care like we do. There weren't any vaccinations for their children, no 401ks, no benefit packages, no air conditioning, no refrigeration. But you know what? The early Christians living in that day without those things, they stood out. People people were blown away, again, at their love for one another and how they took care of one another and the joy that they had. Because you see, God had given them a gift that wasn't from this world. He gave them an overwhelming acceptance through the cross. He gave them God's presence in their hearts, helpful wisdom for everyday living and endless enjoyment of him in heaven when they left this earth. I mean, isn't that enough to make people happy? The Christians in that day thought that it was, and they showed it. Just telling people to think good thoughts, to think positive and be happy... As the, as the song goes, it's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. People are looking for and wanting something real. And I read this a couple of weeks ago. You may have too. About that university in New Jersey, Centenary University, launches a master's degree in happiness studies. Now you can get a degree in happiness Let me read some of the excerpts from that article. It says, Americans treasure their constitutional right to the pursuit of happiness. Centenary University will offer the world's first master's degree program in happiness studies. Only going to cost you $17,700. University President Bruce Murphy, Murphy said he feels positive about the program designed to promote well-being and resilience in the midst of current world stress. Jesus said in John 16, 32, These things I have spoken to you. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The president of that university goes on to say, This degree is an interdisciplinary program designed for leaders who are committed to personal, interpersonal, organizational, and societal happiness. Murphy said, it's, listen, it's grounded, it's grounded in science and research. This new degree will study happiness and resilience to prepare graduates to make an impact in a wide range of fields. He says, when we made the announcement, the place went crazy. Murphy said, people were coming up to me to shake my hand and take selfies. He says, I was kind of shocked. He said, a lot of people see value in this. With participation by the faculty at Centenary, he said, the program will be directed by Tel Ben-Shahar, who has achieved notoriety as a happiness expert. Well, you know what? I know, I know a happiness expert who has achieved notoriety too. And he's perfected joy. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he said in John 15, 9 and 11, as the Father loved me and I also love you, And abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He says, these things I have spoken to you, notice, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Misery is an option. Misery is an option. You can stay miserable by choosing not to change your life and give your life to Christ and allow him to come in and change it. Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, the apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content. The word content means satisfied with one's lot. In other words, in Christ, we can be content with whatever comes our way. Paul said, I have learned to be content with what I have. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to, be, to have more than enough. He says, I have learned, and again, he's used the word learn two times. It's learned. I have learned this secret so that anywhere at any time, I am content, whether I am full or hungry, whether I have too much or too little. And he says, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. You know, the word happy is derived from the Middle English word hap, which means lucky, favored by fortune, being, advanta- being in advantageous circumstances, prosperous, turning out well. You see, happy stems from the environment you're in. Hey, I'm happy when everything's going well. But as I shared earlier, things don't go well in life all the time. Situations, circumstances, events, they're not happy times sometimes. And you see, if that's where my joy lies, that's when Jesus said, don't store up your treasures on this earth where moths and rust can wipe them out. Store your treasures in heaven because, see, if your treasures, if your joy are in the things of this earth, they can be stolen and they can rust and corrupt and be worthless. See, happiness is based on our environment. But the joy that Jesus has, it's something from within. It's something that nobody can take from you. And that's why Jesus said, I give peace, not as the world gives. So again, the gospel gives us hope over everything that wants to take us down. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.8, it's it's a joy inexpressible. It's a joy that, that we don't have words for. It's a joy inexpressible that we can't put into words, and it's full of glory. You see, that's the gift that Jesus gave to the world himself. Jesus' mission is to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to preach liberty, proclaim liberty to the captives, and to comfort those who mourn and anoint them with gladness so that the Lord may be glorified. And Jesus has commissioned us, the church, Christians, to be partners with him in that mission, to spread that joy. That joy is in Christ, not in things. So let's begin now with chapter 61 with verses 1 through 3. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion or Jerusalem, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
Now notice in verse 1 of chapter 61, you have the Trinity. The Spirit, notice the Spirit of the Lord God. Okay, you have the Spirit, you have the Father, the Lord is upon me in capital letters. That's Jesus. So you have the Trinity there in verse 1. The Spirit, the Father, and again Jesus. Jesus was given the anointing of the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the poor, to save the world through him. He fulfilled verse 2 here in Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. Now, if you want to follow along, you know, in, in Luke, you can, because as I explain it, it might be difficult to see without actually looking at the chapters. But uh, if you don't, then, you know, when you want to, if you, when you go home, look up uh, Luke 4, uh, 4, 16 through 21 and compare it here to the verses that I just read to you, especially verse 2. But Jesus fulfilled verse 2 here in Isaiah in Luke 4, 16 and 21. Every true minister of Jesus Christ must both be sanctified, that is, set apart, called, and commissioned. Now, how does he help those who are in trouble? How does God help those that are in trouble? Those who are in bondage, those who are brokenhearted, those who feel like God has abandoned them, those who feel that life is a waste or that life isn't worth living. How does Jesus help them? How does he help the world? By preaching. He has the Holy Spirit. He has the Word of God. That's all that he needs. Now, in the Old Testament, God was already pointing this uh, future joy out by saying here, notice in these verses, to preach good tidings to the poor and proclaim liberty to the captives. He says that there, notice in verse 1. God has set up an institution called the Year of Jubilee. We find it in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 5. I'm sorry, 8 through 55. The background of this passage is the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 7. Every seven years, the Jews were to observe a sabbatical year and then allow the land to rest. That is, after seven sabbaticals, all right, or or 49 years, they were to celebrate the 50th year as the year of Jubilee. During that one year, that jubilee, that 50th year, all debts were canceled. All land was returned to the original owners. The slaves were freed and everybody was given a fresh new beginning. This was the Lord's way of balancing the economy and and keeping the rich from taking advantage of the poor. Leviticus 25.10 says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. That was everybody's job for a whole year. To proclaim liberty throughout the land to all who lived in it. It's a future picture of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're living today in a spiritual kind of year of jubilee. You've been set free from the bondage of sin. Your spiritual sin debt to the Lord has been paid, paid by Christ. You are living in the acceptable year of the Lord. Paul said in Galatians 5.1, freedom is what we have. And if Christ has set you free, free indeed you are. In Christ, you are truly free more than anybody else. Isaiah is saying here that the Messiah helps us to fully understand that freedom through the word of God. The cross wipes out all of our debts, all of our sins. At the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. 
What he came to do was finished and he finished paying the sin debt and he took that bill of ours that that we owed, that that, that sin debt, and he stamped on it, figuratively speaking, paid in full. He paid for my sins and your sins with his blood. He paid our bill. God says now we are free to leave the past behind and to move on with joyful relief. That's Christ's mission in your life. Will you do it? Move on. Forget the past and enjoy the future in Christ. Jesus was so in tune with, the old, with this Old Testament message here in, in Isaiah that he started his ministry by reading this section here in verses 1 through 3 in Isaiah. He started reading this section in a synagogue service in Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 19. Listen to what it says. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and, and stood up and read and read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And that found that place was these verses here in 61, was one, two, verses 1 through 3. This is what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The very thing that was written here, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, Jesus read in the synagogue when he came the first time. But if you look closely in verses 1 and 2 here in Isaiah 61, you will see that Jesus didn't read the whole sentence in Luke chapter 4, verse 19. Why is that? Because the rest of the sentence says here in verse 2 in Isaiah, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus preach the whole thing when he read it in Luke? Notice what he'd said in Luke, what he did. In Luke 4.20, it says, he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And then he said in verse 21, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, on Jesus, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture, today, this scripture that was written in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, is being fulfilled right before you. In other words, Isaiah's prophecy here in Isaiah 61 up to that point, this point, I'm sorry, in Luke, was fulfilled in Christ's first coming. He's saying, today I am fulfilling that which was written in Isaiah 61, the prophecy of Christ. But again, it was fulfilled by Christ's first coming. Isaiah, though, hadn't made the distinction between the first coming and the second comings of Jesus, but Jesus did here in Luke. In Isaiah's prophecy in verse 2, the little word and separates the first and second comings of Christ. Before and after the word and, thus far, has, at this point, has been more than 2,000 years. You see, he's come the first time, but we're still waiting for him to come the second time. The prophets wrote about the first and second comings of Christ. They saw these two great events. But you see, they didn't know how long there would be between the first and second coming. You see, Isaiah was looking into the future. He saw the first and second comings of Christ. The year of the Lord's favor is the jubilee of the gospel of which made us free. We're living in that time right now. 
But what is the day of of vengeance of our God mentioned here in Isaiah? When Jesus read this passage in the synagogue, again, he didn't read these words, the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped reading it at the end of the first line in verse 2 here in Isaiah 61. He left out any reference in Luke to the day of the vengeance of our God. Why is that? Because Jesus does not fulfill all the prophecies at the same time. And at his first coming, he introduced the year of the Lord's favor. Now, at his second coming, he will bring in the day of vengeance of our God. You see, Jesus came the first time as Savior. He's going to come the second time as the judge. Therefore, the day of the vengeance of our God will come in. At his second coming, he's going to bring in the day of vengeance of our God when that door of grace will be closed forever. Right now, we are living in the day of grace. But here's the thing. We do not know how long that day of grace is going to last. God could call the church home tonight. But as long as it does, as long as that time of grace still is open, Jesus keeps using the preaching of the gospel to replace, as it says in verse 3, notice, beauty for ashes. Ashes are a symbol of sorrow, sadness, and failure, and turns our mourning into the oil of joy. This is the power of conversion. And when Israel is restored, it will cause a tremendous change in the people. And it's the same thing with conversion. Man, when a person gets saved, it, it, man, it creates a, a, a dramatic change in that person. That person who was once out in the world and was doing all the things of the world and was strung out on whether drugs, alcohol, or whatever, and just doing the things of the world. And then he, gives, he comes to Christ. It's just, it's mind-blowing. It's just a radical change. These changes require great power. A power that we don't have. And I remember in the old days, many times I thought, man, okay, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to, you know, and, I, and I'd get serious about it. And I'd say, you know, I want to change my life. And the next thing you know, the following weekend, I was back at it. Like the pig that would go back to wallow in the mire and the dog that would return to his vomit. I didn't have the power to change the, my life. I needed something more power. That power comes only from Jesus Christ because we can't make the changes that we need in our own strength. And in Israel's days of rebellion, she was like a withering tree. Compared to what, what, in the kingdom, we're going to be like trees of righteousness, verse 3 says. In the days of rebellion, Israel was like a withering tree. But in the kingdom, she's going to be like a, a tree of righteousness. But all of God's people should be his trees. We should all be like his trees. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 1-1. Planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Again, Psalm 1, 1 through 3. God has planted them like strong, graceful oaks for his own glory. What verses 1 through 3 tell us here in a nutshell is, is, it, is nothing that gives glory to God like the personal and proven righteousness of his own people. When we live for Christ, when we live a Christ-like life and we live in his righteousness, I'm not talking about perfection, 
but we're living in Christ, and we're, we're li- He's our model, and we're, we're trying to model Him. That, that, it, that gives God so much glory, so much glory, that His people, through Jesus Christ, have a living faith in Christ. The restoration of Israel will greatly glorify God. And in the same way, the conversion of the sinner will bring great honor to God. Man's main purpose is to glorify God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, whether you eat, drink, or sleep, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our chief purpose. That's the purpose of the gospel, is to glorify God through the salvation of sinners. Let's look at verse 4 now. It says, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Sin, as you know, as many of us know, has ruined many things in people's lives. Sin has ruined marriages. It's ruined relationships. It's ruined people's health. It's ruined people's prosperity. It's it's just the consequences of sin, the things that the devil doesn't tell you. He says, do it. You'll enjoy it. It'll feel good. You deserve it. But he never tells you the consequences of what you're going to do. Some things can be restored. All right, some things can be fixed with little or no consequence. But there are some consequences that last forever. And they are a constant reminder of the terrible, destructive nature of sin. Here in verse 4, it says the Jewish people literally rebuilt the ruins of Jerusalem after they left captivity. But that's just a picture of a yet everlasting restoration for all. In their kingdom, in that year of Jubilee, the Jewish people will rebuild, they'll repair and restore their land. But that's not going to take place until the beginning of the millennium. That is Christ's 1,000 year reign. And we're not at that place in time right now. Look at verse 5. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen or, or plow your land and your vine dressers. The Gentiles will shepherd Israel's flocks and herds. They'll take care of their crops. Jew and Gentile to, will work together in the Messianic kingdom, and the Gentiles will supply the temporal needs. Verse 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Under the old covenant, God ordained the priests of Israel. They were the ones who would stand between the people and God. They would be the representatives of the people before God. They would bring God's word to the people, and the people's needs and sins would be brought to God. But under the new covenant that we have in Christ... All believers are priests of the Lord. Reading God's word. Seeking to understand it. it, Confessing their sins directly to God and ministering to others. The Jews will be priests and ministers. They'll supply the spiritual need. God will acknowledge them as his firstborn. And he will give them a double portion of his blessing. Notice what it says in verse 7. Instead of your shame, notice you shall have double honor. A double portion of his blessing. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double everlasting joy shall be theirs. Notice how many times we hear the word joy in this chapter. 
We hear it several times. Under the old covenant, like I said, God, or I'm sorry, in verse, going back to verse 7, it shows that in, he says, instead, of, instead that your, your shame and disgrace are going to end. You're going to live in your own land and, your own, and, and have your wealth. It's going to be doubled and your joy is going to last forever. Verse 8. For I, the Lord, notice, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Now, let me read verse 8 again. He says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. We suffer for many reasons. Some of our suffering is due to our own mistakes that we've made in life. Poor choices, wrong choices. And some of our suffering is due to other people's mistakes. Their injustice, that wrongdoing to us. When we suffer for our own mistakes, we, we don't have anybody to blame but ourselves. When we suffer for our own mistakes, we get what we deserve. But when we suffer because of others, because of wrong that they've done to us, God doesn't like that. And God gets angry. And God in his mercy says that his people have suffered enough. And God's going to reward those who suffer because of wrongdoing at the hands of others. One day, God is going to settle all accounts. Verse 9. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their, and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them. That, notice that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. In other words, this verse here, verse 9, shows us the result of God's redeeming work, God's saving work in a person's life. Here Isaiah says in verse 9, God's children are going to be recognized among the nations as one that the Lord has richly blessed with salvation. The picture here is that of the true Israel and their children in the midst of heathen nations. They recognize, hey, these people are different. Not in an odd or strange way. But they see clear and distinctive signs that say these are God's peculiar people. They're not, the people, they're not like the people in the world. They don't act like the world. They don't behave like the world. They don't do the things that the world does anymore. When men look at those Jews, Isaiah says they're going to recognize that God has blessed them. Now, when people see us today, do they recognize that God has blessed us? Do we show through the way we live and the things that we go through that God has blessed us? Not with things, but with himself in our life, giving us victory over trials and temptations. Verse 10. Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Notice, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah here now is speaking on behalf of the remnant who are praising God for all that he's done. They're rejoicing because he's cleansed them. He's re they're rejoicing because he's clothed them and turned their desert, which is, again, a represent, represents a barren life. He's turned their desert, their barren life, into a fruitful garden. This speaks of all of those who rejoice in their God who saved them. 
The source of this rejoicing is the Lord and my God, verse 10 says. Notice that, the Lord and my God. And these words tell us of the heartfelt devotion of the person who's aware of the covenant that God has made with him and they understand what the great God of the covenant has done for him by clothing him in the garments of salvation. Salvation is the state of being right with God. God has clothed us with a robe of righteousness and salvation in Jesus Christ. He's our robe of righteousness. The only reason that we can say we're righteous is because of Jesus Christ outside of him. We are not righteous. It's his righteousness that enables us to stand before a holy God. We're like the oriental bridegroom that is described here in this verse. It says, who comes out all dressed up for a celebration, that wearing a turban, which is a special headdress, like a priest or a bride who's, with, who's adorned with all of her jewelry. Isaiah's giving us a picture here of, of God's people rejoicing in their salvation, clothed with victory, robed in triumph, and wearing the crown jewels of true holiness. Notice it says here, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Man, are you joyful in your God? Ask yourself, really, are you joyful in your God? In other words, what they're saying here, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. They're saying that that they're going to have fun. And I wish today more Christians had fun going to church. Being involved in church. You know, Bible study, serving, giving, fellowshipping, praying. I wish, I wish they enjoyed that more. I wish studying the Bible was thrilling to them and an experience, uh, 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 an exciting experience for all of us. Because it should be. And God intended that it should be. But the problem today is that way too many Christians can't rejoice in the Lord because they're out of tune and fellowship with God. And they're too busy with other things. Too many people have their own plans, their own ideas, and there's sin in their lives. And they're way out of the will of God and they're going around doing their own thing. There's no depth with Jesus. Verse 11, as we close. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown into it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Here Isaiah's purpose is to confirm the certainty of salvation with the growth from the earth. In other words, just like, the, like, like during the springtime, all, all the seeds and the flowers that, 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 that are, have been planted or the seeds that are in the ground, they're going to bring forth buds. They're going to bring forth flowers and fruit. And Isaiah is confirming the same thing with the certainty of salvation. God is going to bring forth fruit in your life. Just as sure as a plant grows, Just as sure as it turns green and it buds and it blossoms and it produces its own fruit, God is also going to cause righteousness to be like a garden in your life. Righteousness to spring up with plants, like plants springing up everywhere. The earth by itself can't make these things spring up and grow. And neither can man by himself bring forth that righteous and holy fruit in his life. Only the Lord can do that because he is all-powerful. And the praise that's spoken here 
that's spoken of here is the result of receiving this heavenly righteousness in Christ. Isaiah is speaking from a prophetical position here in chapter 61 because the blessing described here have not actually happened yet. The church's greatest attraction is the happy, holy lives of her people. That's what the world wants to see. That's an attraction to them. That, that's, that's appealing to them. A happy, holy people. They want to see a church that's living, a church that's full of life. And when you read Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, you can, it's, it's basically, a, uh, for lack of better words, a prescription or the key, the key to a, a, to a thriving church. In verses 44 through 47 of Acts chapter 2, it was busy and it was active. They were in church daily. They were having church fellowship. They were in the word of God. They were breaking bread with one another. In verse 42, it shows holiness and evangelism. They were were sharing the word with everybody, everybody. They were very closely related to one another. The basic result of salvation is righteousness and its byproduct is praise, which you see in chapter 241 of Acts, verse 47. But here's the thing. Righteousness and praise are the result of salvation. And you need both righteousness and praises if you're going to tell others about God's grace. How will we get people to believe what we're telling them if they don't see it in our own lives? And and, and too many don't see it in in Christians' lives. And and if, you know, why why would they want to come to church if they don't see it in in the people's lives? If there's no joy and there's no, you know, there's no liveliness and, and there's no joy in, in, in studying the word, read the word and spending time in prayer and in the presence of God. So I pray that these things would just minister to us and, and, and that the Christian life would be, would be thrilling to us. The reading of the word, the praying, Bible study, fellowship. Again, all of those things would become active and alive in our life. It really would make a difference in the church and in the world. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, God, the beauty of your word. And Father, I pray that, Lord, that we would take it to heart, Lord. And that, Father, we would begin to adjust our lives according to the word. To see that I need to make you, God, my priority to make study of your word and reading and prayer and fellowship a priority. Because without you, Lord, I am nothing. And Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would wake us up spiritually. Wake up your church, Lord. Help us to come alive, Lord, in these days of darkness. The days that we're living in, Lord. And Father, let, let, let us tell them that you are the answer. You are the power that they need. 
to live holy, victorious lives. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, tomorrow night is the National Day of Prayer. And again, we do pray that uh, you'd come out and be a part of that, that night. And I'm going to share a little bit about the National Day of Prayer and how we got it and the importance of it and, again, the things to pray for. And so, again, do pray that uh, you come out and just be a part of that important event. Uh, Sunday morning, we will be back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And it's, a, it's about avoiding lawsuits with Christians. Avoid taking a brother you know, to the court and then you know, airing, airing out our dispute before, you know...